0: What is acupuncture? How does it work? What should I expect? And am I even crazy for considering this in the first place? If you're skeptical, unsure, or simply curious about acupuncture, then you're in the right place. I'm your co host, Michael Max.
1: And I'm your other guide, Stacey Whitcomb. We're here to help you get a taste and flavor of what you can expect from acupuncture and other related therapies and methods that arise from East Asian medicine.
0: Most of us here in the West to not grow up with acupuncture. It's hard to understand something if you have not had experience with it. Having an inquisitive and skeptical mind, it's a good thing when you're seeking out healthcare.
1: We're both acupuncturists. We like good ideas and something new. Common questions about acupuncture in everyday simple language. You'll hear from both Michael and myself, but also from other acupuncturists who have enough experience and perspective that they can in three minutes share something essential of this medicine so you can consider if you might like to use this natural method yourself.
0: We know that you're busy, so we're looking to bring you a wide variety of perspectives. Make the point in three minutes.
1: We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system. But Not all mushroom products are equal. Real mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that real mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order.
0: Seriously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hey everybody! Welcome back to Everyday Acupuncture. My guest today is Anna Kelly. Anna is she's got quite a list of credentials here. She's a she's a medical doctor. She's an MD. She's an LAC. That means she's a licensed acupuncturist. She did a five year internship and and uh, did all the training that uh, that a regular traditional Chinese medicine person would get. In addition to that, she's a board certified anesthesiologist. She's an active member of both the National and the Georgia State Medical Acupuncture Associations. She's recently come off of a year working at Walter Reed Hospital with the Wounded Warriors Program. We're going to get deep into the use of acupuncture in Chinese medicine for post traumatic stress and um, um, traumatic brain injury. She's fixing to head down to Florida here pretty quick to do a fellowship in addiction. She, we've got a lot to talk about in terms of how people heal from some pretty difficult stuff. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation and sharing it with you. Anna, welcome to Everyday Acupuncture.
2: Thank you, Michael. It is a pleasure to speak with you this morning.
0: Yeah, this is going to be fun. We met a few years ago at the Medical Acupuncture Association's conference when you were in St. Louis. And, I, yeah, I had an opportunity to be... Uh, a media person there, so I got to interview all kinds of people, but you were so busy with uh, helping to run that thing, we didn't get a chance, so I'm, I'm glad you've made some time for us today.
2: Isn't that a great meeting, Michael? It's just such a beautiful uh, gathering of, you know, scholarly acupuncturists, cl- clinical acupuncturists, physician acupuncturists, research acupuncturists. It's, a, it's one of my favorite meetings of the year.
0: I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I know it's in Kansas City next year, and that's in my neighborhood, so I'll see you there. Wonderful. Yeah, that'll be good. Anyway, let's let's jump in today's topic, um, PTSD. Tell us what you've been doing at Walter Reed and, and how acupuncture helps.
2: Well, I had a very unique opportunity last year to leave my clinical practice of 25 years. I've been operating a pain management and medical acupuncture practice for 25 years, initially starting off doing the anesthesia pain management things, all the blocks, all the medications, all the injections. And I added in acupuncture in 1999, and it didn't take but a year or two to see that the patients that received acupuncture and acupuncture exclusively did better than those who didn't you know, want acupuncture or receive acupuncture and we're just receiving medications, injections, and I began to, you know, side by side compare these groups of patients and I realized that the more holistically inclined acupuncture was just so much better for the human condition no matter what the problem was, whether it was chronic pain, addiction, irritable bowel syndrome, depression, PTSD, and so in 2002 I developed an exclusively acupuncture practice, an exclusive acupuncture practice, doing nothing but acupuncture and eventually Chinese herbs and classical Chinese pulse diagnosis. And so about a year ago, this one-year contract position came up, became available. My kids were, were grown and mostly out of college. One of them has one more year. And I thought, what a unique opportunity to uproot my life and move up to D.C. for a year, to the D.C. area. Walter Reed's actually in Bethesda. And uh, my two acupuncture partners continued to run my practice here in Atlanta. And the interesting thing is, Michael, a few months after I had started there, we were going over some numbers because I still own uh, Metro Acupuncture in Atlanta. And I called to see how we were doing financially. And actually, they were doing better in my absence. (laughs) 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 So so it made me feel good that I can go do this thing at Walter Reed and still, you know, have a practice to come back to. Should that should that happen? But it turns out I'm I'm like you said, I'm fixing to go to Florida to do an addiction medicine fellowship. I love the I love that you use that term fixing too. That's a southern thing. And as you might can tell from my accent, I'm a southern girl. It sounds
0: like it, yes.
2: Yes. Yeah, so at Walter Reed I worked with in something called the Warrior Transition Brigade. There are several of these across the United States, the main one being in uh, at Walter Reed. They call it the nation's flagship military hospital. But I uh, began working with wounded warriors who had a diagnosis of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, TBI, um, and also a host of other medical conditions. Some had been diagnosed with cancer one had a ruptured appendix. Another had a ruptured, had a, some complications after a laparoscopic gallbladder removal. So I just had an opportunity to practice in a different setting. And what I found out was that, yes, it was a privilege to work. It has been a privilege to work with our nation's wounded warriors. That job is ending next week. But what I found out is the population, the kind of conversations I had weren't too different from what I'd been having in Atlanta. I think as humans, we all seek relief from our existential angst, whatever that is, whether it's the problems of war or problems rooted in, in our family of origin. I talk a lot about family of origin in my practice, or whether it's just a straight up, hey, I dropped a jar of pickles on my foot and I've had pain ever since. The gamut of problems that we humans have.
0: There's a phrase that you used about discovering that acupuncture was better for the human condition. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious to hear a little bit more about that.
2: Well, if we contrast the Western model of medicine with the Eastern, you know, Western model is based on the Cartesian model of man as machine. And so we've so reduced the problems to, and, and that's good because if you have heart disease, you know, you could potentially get a heart transplant and that would quote fix that problem. If you've ever had the privilege of working with organ transplant patients, you know that you're really sort of trading one problem for another, the problem of now having to take immunosuppressant drugs for the rest of your life. So it's a wonderful system of medicine. It's wonderful for acute problems and many chronic problems. But the Eastern model tends to sort of step way back and look at the patient as an ecosystem, And so uh, acupuncture is based on a science of relationships. So as you know, we're always trying to say, well, what's behind that? What's the root of that problem? And treat not only the symptom or the branch, but the root. And so found that it. And so the question became early on in my acupuncture career, what have been the forces upon this patient before they came to see me today? Mm
3: -hmm.
2: And so I had to, I had to go all the way back to childhood. I had to go all the way back to the parents' health. I had to go all the way back to tell me about the community in which you were raised. Tell me about your value system. Now, sometimes I didn't come out and ask such a broad question, but I would have a notion of the patient's value system just from talking about their family of origin. As you know, in Chinese medicine, if you're the, I had a, patient recently that was the 18th child of 18 children oh my goodness and so that isn't that crazy so the health of the 18th child may be very different than a firstborn child you know born to an 18 or 20 year old this brings up issues of what we call gene deficiency in chinese medicine or just depletion syndromes
3: mm-hmm.
2: it takes a, it takes a lot of chi and blood for a mother to make a baby you know and so i found that being knowledgeable about both the Eastern model and the Western model helped me serve the patient better. And in in regards to the Warrior Clinic at Walter Reed, what I like about that is I think the military is far ahead of the curve, at least currently, in adding in these what we call alternative treatments, uh, neurofeedback, biofeedback, acupuncture, yoga, cognitive behavioral therapy, all these things have come together to really serve the wounded warrior, and the results are very positive. Particularly for pain management, the military has been very assertive in helping patients either not get started on opioids for chronic pain or wean off of opioids for chronic pain and add in these other therapies. And they they, they are just freed up. Now, even if they still have chronic pain, I have found that they're freed up in... I'm going to use this word you know existential ways. it is possible to be free and content and feel a sense of less limitation despite the fact that pain might persist as you know it does in certain patients if if acupuncture cured chronic pain one hundred percent uh you know we would all be very wealthy and famous but you know like western medicine it has it serves to move the patient forward, but sometimes we if patient's lost a limb and an IED explosion, we can't grow that leg back. But whereas Western medicine can provide beautiful work with prosthesis, which they do at Walter Reed. So I've just really enjoyed working side by side with my Western medicine colleagues. And uh, it's been a beautiful year for me. An interesting thing happened. I believe we had six or eight physician acupuncturists. By the way, Walter Reed only allows physician acupuncturists. They don't allow licensed acupuncturist, which I I think needs to change. But I had the privilege, there were six or eight of us that gathered this past year through different means to work at Walter Reed. And, you know, there were some of us that were trained by Joe Helms from the Helms Medical Institute and French Energetics. And then there were others that trained at the Harvard program, Joe Audet's Harvard program based on the Japanese palpatory style I brought in the classical Chinese pulse diagnosis, which is Leon Hammer's work.
3: Mm-hmm. He wrote that
2: beautiful book, that beautiful book, uh, Dragon Rises, Redbird Flies. And so I had the, the privilege of studying for four years with one of his protege, Vonnie Jarrett, out of Western Massachusetts. So that very much informed my practice with the Wounded Warriors. And I did exclusively uh, acupuncture, yoga, meditation, and uh, a little bit of music therapy. So I did a little bit of everything. It's just been a wonderful, wonderful year.
0: So, all right, I just want to unpack this a little bit. I think a lot of people, they often think that acupuncture is either a one-and-done, you know, some sort of mystical, magical thing, or it's just mumbo-jumbo and, you know, we can ignore it completely. Of course, the truth lies elsewhere. I'm curious, you know, and I'm especially curious because you've got the experience of having used western medicine in it's very traditional form to help with pain and then you started using acupuncture and you find it, it it works differently and more holistically and you get these other kinds of results for i guess two questions here one is is there any particular kind of acupuncture that seems to help with well let's let's just start with PTSD is there any particular kind of acupuncture that's that's more useful and then what are some of the kinds of changes that you see that you can relate back to the acupuncture that, that aren't coming from something else?
2: Yes. Those are two very good questions. As far as, is there any kind of acupuncture that works better than others? I have, I've had a unique opportunity to study five element acupuncture at Ty Sophia Institute. They have a, they have a professionals program in, I guess what you might call liberal studies. So I didn't get my acupuncture training there, but I did this, It's called Applied Healing Arts. And I became steeped in the five-element model. Although I don't practice five-element acupuncture, that taught me the beauty of treating the patient's constitution, which is a beautiful way to restore original nature. And it brings to mind that philosophical question, what is man's original nature? But I also studied a lot with uh, Richard Tan, Balance Method, which is based on binary mass, the binary mass of yin-yang theory. And so using that for... Really severe pain problems that might limit the patient. And as I mentioned earlier, I trained in and I practice primarily French energetic acupuncture with a little bit of TCM thrown in if I'm prescribing herbs. So I just sort of blend it all together. And as I'm talking with the patient, I, I tell them, you know, there's no beware of people that just stick the needle where it hurts, you know, because that's a fairly limited form of just trying to relieve a, a limited pain problem where where a, a true acupuncturist can step way back and treat not only the branch, the symptom at hand, and they may put a needle where it hurts, but they're also treating the root or maybe the constitution. So I have found, a friend of mine said recently, Anna, you're educated way beyond your level of intelligence. I mean, I've got so many certificates and degrees, and, but what that's done, A, I love school, and B, it's allowed me to have a wide range of tools to use When I'm talking with the patient, so I ask the patient, you know, say I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Please answer to the extent that you're comfortable. It's going to be a little bit different from most medical interviews that you've had, Um, but what I'm doing is I'm translating your story into a treatment that I think might be beneficial. So what I we ask what changes can we relate back to acupuncture? I like to think that acupuncture turns on the internal pharmacy of the patient. And that's what I mean by the restorative thing. The needles act like little micro batteries and send signals not only to each other, but signals back to the underlying organ to which they're attached. And then including the central nervous system. And so it really does, I I was seeing a patient yesterday in my clinic here in Atlanta, and he said, Ann, I remember the first treatment I had with you He said, even though we only lived two miles away, he said, I almost couldn't make it home. I was so sleepy. This happens sometimes. Mm -hmm. And he said, I went home and I slept for four hours straight. And when I woke up, I had the best day that I've had in years. And this is a man, you know, in his 70s but I probably started seeing when he was in his 60s. So he just felt well, despite the fact that he still had, you know, arthritis and back pain and prostate issues and insomnia. You know, he just felt well in the presence of those symptoms and over the course of i guess i've been seeing him 10 years now you know a lot of those symptoms have ameliorated
0: you know i love this phrase that you just use well in the presence of symptoms that so often we think about a successful treatment is getting rid of symptoms but you know let's face it, as we, as we get older right i've got patients that come in they go well you know i got arthritis acupuncture will not make their arthritis go away and they can feel well in the presence of these things.
2: Yes. Well, before you and I went on air, we had a brief conversation about a recent death I've had in my family. And death, you know, is a metaphor for change. And even though it was an intense time, it was a, a sad time, it was also a very beautiful time, you know, mm-hmm. just to know that, that, you know, we're all going to die and we're all going to experience death of others before we have have our own death. And so, you know, it's just given me an opportunity to think deeply about change. And uh, the world is always changing. Our bodies are always changing. And can we feel a deep sense of contentment in the face of that change? And the answer I've discovered in my own life and with my patients is a resounding yes, It is possible to to feel a sense of completeness, if you will, is another way to put it. So it's just been a beautiful, beautiful career. I'm so grateful to my acupuncture teachers over the years that taught me what I like to think of as true medicine, real medicine, you know, that works so well for all of our chronic diseases, arthritis, PTSD, traumatic brain injury. I have a patient um, at Walter Reed that had a stroke. And he still has some cognitive symptoms and some limitations, but ah, I just love talking with him. And he loves talking with me. And he just feels, he says, you, you put something into me. I said, no, I didn't put anything into you. The needles have no medicine on them. What I did is I turned on your own pharmacy that just wants to say to the world, what next? You know, no matter if we're 90 or no matter if we're 20, you know, what's next?
0: Yeah. You know, you use the word constitution, and you're talking about this internal pharmacy, and I'm thinking how fortunate we are as practitioners of Chinese medicine. We have this idea in Chinese medicine that that is not available in Western medicine or conventional medicine. We have this idea of a thing called the Zheng Qi, right? Zheng is such an interesting character. It, It means proper. It means upright. It means correct. It's like there's always this thing in us. As sick as we may be, there's always this thing in us that's like got the blueprint for what wellness is at any given moment in our journey in this life. And this really is part of what the acupuncture needles tap. I have the same experience in my clinic. People go, wow, what did you put in me? It's like I didn't put anything. I did put nothing in you. All we're doing with these needles is calling out a response of something that is already in you; it's just not able to unfold it itself.
2: That's right. I call it engaging the proper use of the will in the face of whatever's showing up in life, whatever change is happening now. You know, whether it be the death of a loved one or a disease process. What is the proper use of the will in this context? And that's the fundamental kidney heart axis, the water fire axis. And so in the Warrior Clinic, I have a picture of J.R. Worsley's five element acupuncture. I'm sure you've seen it, the five element model. And patients will ask about that. What is that? And I say, oh, this is a picture of you. <laughs> and we, t- we might talk about, you know, we might talk about that each organ has a corresponding channel. It has a corresponding emotion. It has a corresponding preference in regard to taste and flavors. Um, it has a corresponding time of day. And, it's, it's, I, I, the, you know, many of the soldiers just love, you know, they'll say, tell me more about the wood, you know, um, tell me more about this water fire axis. And it just serves as a basis. And like I said, I don't even practice five element acupuncture per se, but I use it to inform my point selection when I'm doing this French energetics, which, as you know, many of the physicians in the United States use this system uh, of French energetics to move the energy around the body and it, it just serves as a basis of conversation and I have found that there's almost no one that's not interested in it.
0: I love the way that you uh, describe the, the five element map as this is a map of you because it is, it's such a powerful sense of correspondences, how things get created, how things get held in place how things get stuck. It's a very beautiful model, really, of, of what we would call homeostasis in the West, except it really gives you some some leverage points to work with it.
2: Yeah, I don't need to say anything about that. It's, um, <laughs> you're exactly right.
0: <laughs> so in terms, I mean, it sounds like on one hand you're, you're really helping people with their physical issues, but it sounds like you're going beyond that. You're, you're working with... Uh, psycho-emotive, maybe tapping even into the spiritual aspects of how life unfolds for us. How Can you tell us a little bit more about how the acupuncture works with these other aspects of us?
2: Uh, well, yes, I can. I've actually, I'm a student of Vedanta, and my teacher is James Schwartz. And while you use this term, different aspects of us, I find that the whole endeavor is, is spiritual, whether or not one has a religious belief, but we're always seeking, we're always striving. Even if we have criminal behavior, we're striving to get what we think is due to us. And so this common human striving um, is the spiritual thing that I talk about in the clinic. And so one of the things that um, I think Eastern medicine does so much of a of of a great job with is examining this and considering uh, not just the physical body, which Western medicine is very good at treating, but also the emotional body, the mental body, the, and that the whole thing ends up being spiritual. You know, we are inhabitants of this physical vehicle for some time in our life. And, and yet I'm so moved that there's this eternal aspect to our being, you know, there's the, notion in Vedanta that consciousness is the substrate of all that exists. And this is in contrast with my study as an anesthesiologist that consciousness arises from the physical being. So these are two different models that I've just enjoyed thinking about and talking about. And we can have a whole other conversation about Vedanta and how it's informed my medicine over the years. But I have found that I don't divide it up into compartments. You know, there's the physical being and the emotional being and the mental being um, and family of origin issues. I sort of talk about the whole thing and let the patient guide where they want the conversation to go by asking different questions. You know, and a lot of them, I'm sure you've had this, Michael, where they say, oh, it's just my knee, Doc. It's just my knee. And over time, if they keep, if they keep coming back, I help them step way back and see. well, yes, it is your knee, but we're talking about your whole life here that we're having a conversation with. And some of the more materialistically inclined uh, colonels and generals that I've worked with have this reductionistic, it's just my knee, but at the end of the year, I've had several of them come back and say, wow, you know, I had no idea that I was more than just my knee pain, you know?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So the healing is really not about necessarily just taking away the knee pain. It's about seeing it all in a, in a particular context of how life is unfolding.
2: Well, I'm, I'm sure you've heard that the lowest-level physician treats symptoms. The mid-level physician treats constitution. So then we have to say, well, how do I assess the patient's constitution? And that's mm-hmm. where five-element con- you know, acupuncture comes into play. But then the highest-level physician... And, I, and, and practitioners, I think we all aspire to this as healers, as acupuncturists, as doctors, as nurses, um, is to restore original nature and nourish destiny. So this brings in this much bigger conversation that ends up being what I call spiritual in nature. What is my original nature? And being raised in the church in the South, um, I was taught that my original nature was a sinner you know, in need of redemption. And uh, what I've learned through my Eastern medicine studies and my studies of Vedanta is actually that I'm a divine being. I am a reflection of the creator. I am a reflection of something much greater than myself. And when I can be in touch with that, I end up being able to live a content life. And I might even say a worshipful life in the face of, I mean, geez, just all kinds of problems. You know, it's been interesting to be in D.C. in the political scene. There's been a great upheaval and a great divide in, in our nation, you know, the Democrats versus the Republicans, and some say it manifests in dysfunction, but it, to me, it gives us a chance to just explore, you know, what is the proper use of government? What is the proper use of our individual will? When, you know, for example, I'm not going to run for office. I have too many skeletons in my closet, you know. So it's just been a very interesting thing to be, you know, to come up out of the South, which is a fairly conservative, religious, I might say, area. um, And I'm a church goer. I love my church to a more liberal area of the United States. You know, D.C., there's just a a big liberal influence there. And so it's been great to, to interface with not just the patients at Walter Reed, but just the people in the area. I've met all sorts of interesting
0: people. I mean, it sounds like your time up there is very similar to how acupuncture works in some ways, in that, I mean, I've seen this in myself, and I I see this in my patients as well, that something expands in them. Things that they were trying to keep away or things that they weren't aware of come into view, come into focus. There becomes a, a larger sense of how things are. And a decreased sense of limitation. And a decreased sense of limitation. You know, isn't that interesting? As you increase the sense of possibility, there's a decreased sense of limitation, even if there's still pain.
2: That's right. And so one of my favorite treatments is a treatment that I've called the great return. It's using the five element model. It's where you help the patient make that bridge from the the metal element, which involves the organs of letting go, the lungs and large intestine, you know, we breathe out what we don't need and we poop out what we don't need and stepping into that next on the circulation of energy, stepping into that next water element, which is, you know, the water is a metaphor for the infinite. It's a metaphor for possibility, but in order to manifest this or to even begin to appreciate it, we have to let go. So we let go of old ideas so that new ones can come in and this moves. From Atlanta, where I've been living for over 30 years, to D.C. for the past year, you know, involved quite a bit of letting go for me on a personal level. I let go of – of uh, I moved into a very small 600-square-foot space from a bigger house. I let go of my practice here in Atlanta and just trusted that that was going to be taken care of. I let go of a lot of my – I'm I'm in a 12-step program, and I let go a lot of a lot of the women I was working with there – And I began to have a conversation with the wounded warriors um, about their relationship with substances. You know, our nation is in an opioid crisis. Our nation, we perhaps in some sense have an unwholesome relationship with alcohol. My son is out at a big university in Colorado and you know, he's astounded sometime at the consumption of alcohol that goes on around him, you know, Mm -hmm. just to see, just to see this, you know, sort of fraternity boy atmosphere all over campus. It's not limited to the fraternities anymore. And so, I. I, and and the military culture is a big uh, drinking culture when they're away from their family and they're with their peers and they have time off, you know, there, there's a, a use of alcohol that, sometimes deserves uh, reflection and um, deserves a conversation. At least we used to have to sort of tuck under, you know, it used used to not be acceptable to say I'm an alcoholic. And when I got into recovery almost 19 years ago, sometimes I share with the patients I'm in a 12 step recovery program and it's changed my life and I'm grateful for it. And this opens up a conversation. If the warrior happens to be uh, an alcoholic or an addict or have some sort of problem with gambling or, Other issues that, that, or sugar addiction, you know, is a big one. It's just, again, serves as a basis of not only a conversation, but then a treatment, which helps them engage this proper use of the will and, you know, maybe stop drinking or maybe begin to explore their local AA 12-step group, you know. So it's just been so beautiful. I am so grateful, Michael, for I would have never, if you'd have asked me when I was that college student applying to medical school I mean I just never would have predicted I'd be sitting here gosh I graduated almost 30 years ago I guess I feel old more than 30 years ago I would have never predicted that I would end up here
0: Well you know the future rarely looks like we imagine it to I hope you've enjoyed the first half of the show Now it's time for a word from our sponsor. That would be you. You could support the effort here by popping over to everydayacupuncturepodcast.com and click on the link to support the show and leave a few dollars that will help to keep some inspiration in the teacup. You know, we run on only the finest oolong and poorer teas here at Everyday Acupuncture Podcast Central. No point in going all NPR pledge drive here to remind you that teas like that don't come cheaply. Just know that if you like the show, you can express your appreciation for these interviews with a small donation. As always, I love to get your feedback and ideas for future shows, so send those along too. Thanks again for listening, and now on to the second half of the show. I want to get into this addiction thing a little bit more, but I want to do that in just a moment. Okay. I I want to hear more about this metal-to-water Transition. This uh, what I forget. The did you call? It, what what did you call it? Some kind of gate or something?
2: Well, in the five element model, there's the water element that gives birth to the wood element, that then mothers the fire element, and then the fire gives rise to the earth in the form of ashes, and then the earth gives rise to the metal in the form of you know packing in the density of the earth, and deep inside the earth is this metal ore, you know, the minerals in the earth. And, um, and so you can see the relationship between, for example, the water and the wood. If the tree isn't go- growing well, add more water to it.
3: Mm-hmm. If
2: the fire isn't burning well, we add more wood to it. If we need to build an earthen dam, we take the ash from the fire and make a brick, you know, out of it. If we, and then the, the earth, as I said, gives rise to the metal element, but it's a little bit difficult to move from the, if we're using metaphor, how does the metal element, how do minerals give rise to water? And so this is the most difficult, you know, transition to understand cognitively, intellectually, and also I think sometimes in our life, like I said, we have to let go in order to bring in the new, and this is the hardest thing for we humans to do. You know, we like stability. We like things to be like we want them. <laughs> like, like we had them planned out 30 years ago, you know?
0: Yes. I have, I have experience.
2: Exactly. I think the older we get, you know, the more we can sort of reflect back on our own lives. But so if I choose the metal point in the metal meridian, which is long eight, And I pair it with the metal point in the water meridian, which is kidney 7. So I needle kidney 7 there on the ankle. I needle lung 8 there on the wrist. And then I use these upper kidney points, the one on either side of the sternum. And remember, the kidney meridian ends right beneath the clavicles there at kidney 27. But it then sends a branch up to the thyroid and to the brain, which is part of the water element. But these kidney points that are on either side of the sternum there in the upper chest are also heart points. So they engage this kidney uh, heart axis, this water-fire axis. And so whichever these points are tender, I needle. And then I usually also add in lung one, lung two there on the outer chest that are points that touch on our generational grief, you know, our our mothers and grandmothers and fathers and grandfathers grief. If we're going back three generations, even to our great grandfather. And this is a treatment often I'll do when I first meet a patient, when I, when I especially when I hear stories of, you know, generational angst. I had a patient recently who said his father died when he was 10. And I said, what did he die of? And I, he said he died, uh, he was an alcoholic and he died in a drunk driving accident. So this, you know, is a fracture in the patient's young life at age 10, and uh, it also gives me a chance to talk about something that probably 40 years ago as a 10-year-old, I don't even think he was allowed to go to the funeral. So he needed to talk about this decades later, and uh, I did this treatment on him, the Great Return, and then next week, he, you know, is one of those things where he said, I don't know what you did to me, but I haven't felt such peace about my life. In my place in this world in years. So, uh, does, does that answer your question? I know it's a little technically oriented, but maybe if there's some acupuncturists listening, you know, they're they're welcome to contact me and I can talk more about that.
3: But yeah.
2: I called it the great great return because it allows us to cycle through that five element. You know, that's either a day in the life of a man, a season in the life of a man, a year in the life of a man, or it's the man's life. You know, the ultimate letting go is on the exhale, when that metal element respires no more. The lungs respire no more. We're born on the inhale. We take our first breath when we come out of the water of the womb. We we take our first breath as an inhale, and then life begins, and then we die on the exhale. And so, you know, that five-element model can represent man's entire life here on this earth. So, life is one big breath. You know, We're born on the inhale, and then we exhale and die.
0: I'm uh, I'm struck by a couple things. One, I, I love the poetry that's in Chinese medicine. Yes, it's so beautiful. I mean, there's that poetry piece, and, and of course. You know, the other thing that's hilarious to me is, well, are there some studies that show this is helpful? But we're not going to go into that. We're not going to go into that at the moment. Um, We're just going to hold that to the side because you want to look at the results of things, right? I mean, there's trying to understand the mechanisms, and I get it. it's, It's helpful to understand the mechanisms. But when we're talking about healing, it's more important to look at what are the results. Yes, what does the patient say? That's right. <laughs> and, and then when we look at something like the five elements, you can take it apart in a way and look at it as like a mechanism. It's like, okay, here's kind of the clockworks of, of how a human being works. And you can look yeah. at it at a very simple physiological level. You can look at it at a functional level. You can look at it in terms of, of the experiences that we have in life and the directions it sets us in the gifts those directions give us the troubles those directions give us and at a certain point water needs to transform into wood and wood needs to transfer you know transform into fire it it's not a matter of which of these elements is better it's a matter of how much flow and flexibility and fluidity do we have to inhabit the whole thing
2: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, Western medicine tends to be causal. You know, A causes B, causes C. And that model works great, as I mentioned earlier, for emergency surgery. You know, if your appendix ruptures don't come see me, go see the surgeon. You know, go to the emergency room. But I have found no patient that when I've actually spent time with them that can't relate to the five element model. I mean, because it's just true. You know, it's just a a model of uh, the way life unfolds, the way life emerges. It's not the only model, but in each of our experiences in living, I mean, I've I've not found anyone in the clinic that's either paying to come see me or that's in my private practice or that's seeing me because they've been sent there at Walter Reed by their primary care physician. I've not found one patient that doesn't eventually come to want to talk about this. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Um, And so as I'm leaving these past few weeks, I've had so many people say, gosh, I'm going to miss you. I'm so grateful for this time here with you. And, of course, then I say, well, me too, because it helps me continue to be my best and continue to realize we all have a deeper purpose. And it's in the recognition and fulfillment of that deeper purpose that we are contented.
0: Well, that just sounds almost anti-American to be contented. <laughs> I mean, I mean, think about it. I mean, our, Most of our lives are based on discontent we got to fix this. we got to change that. This has to be different. I'll be happy when.
2: Yes. Well, I, that's, why, that's why I have appreciated this study of Vedanta so much because it teaches us that we are already whole and complete, limitless awareness. You know, so the awareness that was peering out, Michael, through your 8-year-old eyes, through your 16-year-old eyes, through your, you know, 40-year-old eyes is the same awareness that's peering out through the world, through your body now. That's the eternal thing It's just this pure awareness. And and so um, I have to remind myself, you know, if there's some sort of uh, stressor in my life, I mean, who, whose life doesn't have stress? Who? When are we not squeezed by life itself? And so these are just big conversations that I like to have with people. By the way, I'm going down to the University of Florida next week is my last week at Walter Reed. And then I'm going down there for this addiction medicine fellowship. And one of my colleagues at Walter Reed got her PhD in psychology there. And she said, Anna, they told me I was going to be a Gator and I'm not a big football fan. I kind of think it's, you know, not very good for the brain, you know, (laughs) but she said, (laughs) Talking about traumatic brain injury. Right. Exactly. But we, we love it. We love the fight. Don't we? As fans. But she said, Anna, I need to tell you about, there's this thing that happens with the avid football fans. She said, when their team is winning, they feel good. And they really don't need that much psychotherapy. But when their team is on a losing streak, boy, they're just, you know, some of them become very despondent and depressed. And I said, my gosh, what kind of crazy world are we living in where I'm tying my sense of contentment to how a football team is doing? You know, I mean, I just found that a very amusing thing. And so, you know, can we all find something that's more uh, eternal and more abiding than just a football team's wins and losses? And it's just a good question that we can each reflect on and ask ourselves.
0: I want to get back to will for a moment. And I'm asking this out of my own sort of curiosity and ignorance. Because I hear the term, and I've got an idea of what it means. But, you know, it's one of those words where often when I hear it, I realize, I don't really know what that means. I mean, what does it mean to use your will? And, and what actually what actually is the will? And you're talking here about there's a there's an aspect of appropriate use of will and that when i can be honest with myself you know it raises the question of well, what exactly is will what is its function and and what's what's going on here with its proper use whatever that actually is well this is where my 12
2: step program actually has come into has informed my practice i am an alcoholic and noticed early on as a teenager that uh, whenever I had one drink, that drink needed another drink. You know, I just kind of kept going. And I had a lot of uh, blackout experiences in college where I just wouldn't remember what happened the night before. And of course, this is a scary and dangerous thing. And so I learned to, you know, I tried to control my drinking all, all those years. But I noticed whenever I tried to control it, it wasn't as fun as when I just we let go. And so once I just I actually almost died from from my addiction, um, and this scared me enough. I had two young children at the time, but I, I went to rehab, and I lived in a halfway house for four months, and it changed the trajectory of my life. But then when I exited rehab four months later, you know, I returned back to a drinking society. And when I became, when I became stressed out by motherhood or by running my own business, it was, you know, the drink sometimes would call me. Well, you know, if you just had a drink, you'd get a little relief, and and yet I knew that that would set up the phenomenon of craving, much like we see with sugar these days, and that I just wouldn't be able to to stop. And so I engaged with the twelve steps, which actually informs us that hey, I do have a say in my life, and I can I can leave this party and go to an AA meeting where. I remember my son went to a couple of AA meetings with me when he was young, when I was picking up my anniversary chips and so forth. And at one point he said to me about, he must've been about 10 or 12. He said, I mean, all y'all did is just talk about your lives. Is that all it takes to, to, to get to, to stay sober? <laughs> you know? And I said, well, you know, as a matter of fact, it does. And then looking at the, when, when we actually engage with the 12 steps, we do a searching and fearless moral inventory. And we look at, Hey, What in me needs to change? Because like you said earlier, we're all victimized by this world. This person did me wrong. I had
0: my parents didn't love me like they should. Oh yeah. We got, we all got some stories.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so the 12 step helped me break free of that kind of thinking and say, Hey, what in me needs to change? And so through proper use of the will, I worked the steps with my, my sponsor. I learned what in me needs to change. And then I set about to change it. Now, you know, almost 20 years later that I've been doing that, I I started pr- studying and practicing Vedanta, which says, quit trying to fix yourself. You're already a whole, complete divine being. So there, therein lies the mystery of
3: mm.
2: what is it I can change and, and what is it I can't change? What am I truly powerless over? Essentially, you know, we're powerless over a lot of things that happen in our lives. But as, we keep coming back to this, Michael. We can still be free in the face of all this change. So... That is what I have to say about that.
0: Yeah, you know, it it reminds me, I I forget which wiseacre said this, something to the effect of, you're exactly perfect just the way you are, and there's room for a little improvement.
2: That's right, and and I think that's what our life ultimately is about. When I witnessed the uh, decline and death of my former husband over this past few months, I saw him obviously let go of a lot, and totally embrace the unknown of, you know, Hey, what's that last, last breath going to be like? And then mm. what, what about after that? And we had some very interesting conversations about that paradox of, Hey, you're perfect and accept yourself as you are. And couldn't you quit eating so much sugar, you know, <laughs> yeah. diabetes, you know, diabetes is rampant. And I think,
0: Oh my goodness. It's uh, talk about another epidemic in our country. Ugh.
2: yeah. 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 Could, could we look at our relationship with sugar, you
0: know? It's, you know, and that is, I mean, I've been doing a lot of that with my patients. I even have a, uh, a a program that I've got for folks called Beyond Sugar these days that helps people to change their relationship with sugar because it is so incredibly addictive. It is so incredibly available. And people, they'll laugh, they'll go, oh, you know, I'm a sugar junkie. And they'll laugh, ha ha, I'm a sugar junkie. That's funny. But no one goes, I'm a heroin junkie, ha ha ha. And the metabolic mischief caused by sugar well and we could go on and on about that i
2: well we could have a we could ha- we could have a whole podcast on metabolic mischief of sugar
0: <laughs> you know let's let's come back and do one on metabolic mi- mischief with sugar I would love to do that because that that deserves its own show, but for the moment, I, I want to wind this into a slightly different direction again you know we were starting you know with p t s d and, and the work that you're doing there for our listeners who may be dealing with this issue themselves or if someone that they love or care about is dealing with it, and they're not a wounded warrior, you know, they don't have the, the incredible resources at the, at the flagship Walter Reed, what can people who want to use Chinese medicine, what can they do to reach out and start getting some help with this? Or what are some directions or suggestions that you would have for uh, them incorporating acupuncture into into their process of recovering?
2: Well, you know, acupuncture is just one piece of of the puzzle, but if the practitioner of acupuncture is holistically inclined and has established a network in his or her community, we know that, for example, just from my experience, both in private practice and at Walter Reed, there are some medications that are helpful. There are some acupuncture protocols that are helpful, by the way, the military's done a lot of this ear acupuncture, the battlefield acupuncture. That can be helpful and inexpensive, and applied in the community setting. We know that there are some there's some therapeutic implications of psychomotor experiencing or psychodrama. Um, I've had some patients that have engaged with that that have done well with their local, for example, improv group. I actually took a. Year long improv class recently, and I realized, hey, I'm not an improv a- actress, I'm not gonna be on the stage like that. But it, you know, it just got me to thinking about the restoration of original nature and how that, you know, acted out through the therapeutic processes. Um, I think that some people do very well with biofeedback, neurofeedback. I had an opportunity at Walter Reed to take a course on that. So I encourage the patient to find. Oh, and yoga is very good. That's something we can do. It's relatively inexpensive. It's about turning on our own internal pharmacy through breath and movement. And so some patients are going to do very well with that. So I talk and then often, you know, weight loss and taking a look at our relationship with sugar. So nutritional counseling plays a big part of it. So you know, as a as a physician that's more holistically inclined, I just talk on each of these things and find out what the patient's interested in. You know, to go to a yoga class where the teacher is not able to modify the poses according to your limitations might not be the best thing, but to engage in a class where the teacher says, and if you can't do it this way, hey, try it that way. You know, so you've got to find the right practitioner too. It's not just a matter of implementing Ten different therapies. It's about establishing therapeutic relationships with healers, true healers. And so, I, I just try to help people find what works for them. It's typically not just one or two things, but it's six or eight things.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. It's not just one thing. It's not just a couple of acupuncture points.
2: So, although sometimes that great return or the uh, the seven-needle treatment on the front and back of the body that are meant to restore original nature. It has a weird name, the seven internal dragons and devils. But the, these can be very potent first treatment, sort of clear away. Patients will tell me, you know, it's as though a fog had been lifted after I left here. And it lasts mm. anywhere from a few hours to a few weeks.
0: Yeah. You know, that, that that's a funny thing, too, sometimes when patients come back and they go, like, I was pain-freer. I had, I had this... Yeah, like I mean, often it is pain free, right? It's like I was pain free for three days, and they go, "It didn't work." I was just pain free for three days. It didn't work because now I have some pain. I go, "Well, when's the last time you were pain free for three days?" Well, exactly. Uh, I can't remember. Oh, yeah, So there's a change in the trajectory here. Oh, right. yes. Yeah. I mean, sometimes there needs to be a bit of a reframe. To recognize, oh, this actually this counts as progress.
2: Yes. In AA we say progress, not perfection.
0: Oh yeah. Well practice makes progress. It doesn't make perfect. Yes. Whatever Mm -hmm. whatever perfect is. Dialing back for just a moment, let's just I want so I want to get a little mechanistic here for just a, a moment. I'm just curious. In your time at Walter Reed, is there any research that they're doing in terms of acupuncture and PTSD or any anything from that? particular point of view that you've run across that uh, that you found interesting?
2: Well, you know, I'm not aware of any research per se, although we are right across from the NIH there in Bethesda, Maryland, right outside of D.C., and so there are many collaborative studies with the NIH. I'm just not aware of that, but one of the things we did do this past year is we did surveys, just patients would complete a survey on how they experienced acupuncture and we just gathered a lot of data like you were saying why does that data not count why does what the patient says about it why is that ignored in western medicine and so that was interesting it was almost all positive even even if their pain wasn't better there were some positive remarks about somehow they felt better so I mean in fact I can't even think of one negative survey where someone said acupuncture is terrible it didn't help and I hated it you know no one said that no one said that some of them didn't find it helpful and they didn't come back but they didn't have anything negative to say about it they said it it didn't help me as much as some of the other things did and they went Mm -hmm. on to do cognitive behavioral therapy and exposure therapy for example didn't help
0: me but didn't hurt me that's right yeah I'm quite struck here here you are at at a place like Walter Reed and in, in this particular program that you were in, it, it it wasn't based on, oh, here's the latest, I'm using air quotes here, evidence-based research, you know, whatever. It's really based on this incredibly holistic model of treating the entire person. Is that an accurate representation?
2: Yes. I still think as physicians, you know, the physicians that we have at Walter Reed talk about practicing evidence-based medicine, but actually this is another podcast we could have the myth of evidence-based medicine, Um, because as you know, you can use data to prop up any viewpoint. And so, I don't know, that's interesting to me. If you look at, for example, uh, Irving Kirsch's work out of Harvard has shown that antidepressants work no better than placebo for mild to moderate depression. He shows this again and again and again over the past 15 years and how the pharmaceutical companies cherry pick the data to demonstrate. And these are very commonly prescribed medications, and some people need to be on them. But what I found is that there's a whole new de prescribing movement that in my private practice in Atlanta and sometimes at Walter Reed, we're able to reduce the unnecessary prescribing of medications. So, like, the move away from evidence based medicine is, is some that physicians are still uh, struggling with as we see that it, it may be this more of a mythical thing than we ever thought. Because life, yes, life is is mechanistic and can be reductionistic when we're looking at like an organ transplant, for example, but that not everything that counts is measurable.
0: Not everything that counts is measurable. Wow, yeah.
2: Right, yeah, like love. Like How love. do you measure that?
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh.
2: I would say that love counts. Love counts. So.
0: Mm-hmm. After a quote like that, this is just about a place to wind this thing down. That's that's a great thing to leave folks with. Anything that you'd like, any last thing you'd like to share with our listeners before we uh, sign off here?
2: Well, I was just struck by the word, uh, when I think about love, I was just struck by the word gratitude. I have a tremendous gratitude that the trajectory of my life took me out of the operating room where I was mostly engaging with the surgeon and the perioperative nurses and not really with the patient to have a chance over the past 20 years and almost 20 years in acupuncture to really engage with the patient on a, on a much, much deeper and more beautiful level. And it has, I would say it has saved me and I'm, it has saved me from myself, you know, and I'm grateful for
0: that. Anna, thank you so much for uh, joining me in this conversation today.
2: You're welcome. We have uh, some ideas for other conversations for the future.
0: (laughs) Yes, we do. I hope you have enjoyed this episode of Everyday Acupuncture Podcast. If so, please take a moment and visit www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com where you can click on the Review on iTunes button to rate and review the show. Doing this helps other people to find the show. Also, you can express your appreciation by supporting the show with a donation. Thanks for listening, and be sure to tune in again next
3: time.